the question in front of us this morning as we conclude our series titled, I've Been Meaning to Ask, is an important question. Where do we go from here? We've been talking for four weeks now about how we learn to truly listen to each other, to draw closer together, to shake off some of the isolation and the division that has permeated our culture in recent years. We have turned to scripture each Sunday for wisdom, Genesis, to help us answer the question, where are you from? The story of Hannah and 1 Samuel for the question, where do you hurt? The book of Job for the question, what do you need? So much wisdom from Hebrew scriptures, which we often call the Old Testament. And that's where we turn again this morning. One of the commentaries I read this week called the story of Ruth a masterpiece of deep emotional satisfaction and artistic beauty. As we consider the question, where do we go from here? We consider an ancient story about three women who seem to have nowhere to go. But I want to give you an assignment as you listen now to this text. I want you to use your imagination to enter into the story and stand in Ruth's place. It's easy for us to get swept up in Naomi's tragic tale, but I want you to resist that this morning and instead listen to Ruth. Ruth is the one with a lesson for us about courage and connection. Listen now. Today's scripture reading is taken from the book of Ruth, the first 22 verses of chapter 1. Here begins the reading. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. When they had lived there about ten years, both Malin and Kilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb 
that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain them from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, even if death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Call me no longer Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Here ends the reading, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The story of Ruth is one of the few places in the male-dominated world of Scripture where women play the major roles and are the central characters. To be sure, these women in our story today must still make their way in a society that is ruled by men, but the story is told from a female perspective, and that makes it a rare and remarkable addition to the Bible. The story begins with a family in crisis. First, a famine so severe, the family is forced to cross the border in search of food. And then the crisis continues with the loss of two generations of men in one family. Good news is hard to find in all this tragedy. Just when Naomi is beginning to believe the light at the end of the tunnel is a train, or maybe we should say a chariot, given the period in history, she hears one piece of good news. The drought in Judah is over. The crops are growing again. Naomi believes it's time to go home. But I asked you to consider, as you were listening to the scripture a few minutes ago, to consider the story not from Naomi's point of view, but from the perspective of Ruth. Ruth is home. She's a local girl who married into a refugee family. Ruth has her own relatives to lean on. Moab is familiar territory. She knows her way around. She could return to her mother's house. That's the phrase that Naomi uses. 
and wait for the right man to come along the second time, and perhaps there would be children. Instead, Ruth makes the decision to become a refugee and a widow. The conversation between Naomi and Ruth in front of us today is the only dialogue in all of Scripture where two women discuss their own welfare and make their own decisions. All three women are on the road to Judah when it happens. Naomi stops the younger women to pronounce a benediction of sorts over them. Go back, each of you, to your mother's house, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with me. May the Lord grant that you will find security. Naomi's advice to the women is reasonable, and she persuades Orpah to be practical, but not Ruth. Ruth is like a tree planted by the water. She will not be moved. Our story tells us that Ruth clings to Naomi. And when I hear those words, I immediately think about the time years ago when my boys were toddlers and I would take them to the church nursery and it was still an unfamiliar place. Then I would try to make it to the door as quickly as possible, trying to avoid them grabbing my leg and holding on for dear life as I was trying to exit. But that's not the kind of clinging that the Hebrew word in our scripture passage for today represents. It is the same word that we find in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and the two become one. We also find the same word in Deuteronomy chapter 10. You shall fear the Lord your God. God alone shall you worship. To the Lord you shall hold fast. That's the same word that we find here describing Ruth. She is decisive. She is all in, and she is demonstrating an unshakable commitment to be there for Naomi. Here's the way one of the commentaries I read put it. Ruth swears an oath to do for Naomi what Naomi's husband, her two sons, and her daughter-in-law Orpah could not do. Ruth promises to stay by Naomi's side. Not even death, which has been the chief resident of their household, will get in Ruth's way. I love those words, that description. Ruth's life is changed forever by the promise she is making to honor this woman who has come to what seems like the end of the road for her. Naomi is so worn down by her grief that she can't even conjure up an ounce of gratitude for the sacrifice Ruth is about to make. There's no warm response to Ruth's beautiful pledge. In that exchange, however, we can see the light of Ruth's adopted God shining through her life. We can't help but smile at this remarkable, courageous young woman. The sacrifice, to be sure, that Ruth is making is considerable. Once she puts down roots in Bethlehem, she becomes the outsider, the Moabite. 
And the timing is unfortunate because Ruth will be establishing her home in a culture that has been heavily influenced by the reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah. They believe they could purify the population by casting out all the foreign wives and all of their children. Ruth is one of those wives. The story gives us an opportunity to ask all the questions that we have been rehearsing and considering over the weeks of this series. Ruth, I've been meaning to ask, where are you from? Once the two women unpack their bags and settle in in Bethlehem, chapter 2 of the book of Ruth, the scripture begins to refer, refer to Ruth as the Moabite. Yes, let's make sure that even centuries later, everybody knows she's an outsider. Moabites were treated as second-class citizens in Bethlehem. So that makes me wonder if Naomi's family even took the time to get to know Ruth, to hear about her home, to ask about the foods and the traditions and the holidays she missed the most. What if we ask Ruth where it hurts does she receive any occasional news from Moab that takes the edge off her homesickness? Does she ever wonder what her life might have been if she had resisted following her heart and clinging to Naomi? As we get to know her better, perhaps we could ask Ruth to tell us about her late husband, how they met, what was he like, what she remembers most about him. We don't have many details in our story, but it seems Ruth and her husband were married about 10 years before he died, and we know there were no children from that marriage. What could this loving, resilient young woman teach us about loss? Next question. What do you need, Ruth? When we read chapter two of the story, we see Ruth doing all she can to put food on the table at night for Naomi and for herself. The barley harvest is underway in the fields surrounding Bethlehem. It is the practice of the farmers to allow those in need to collect grain left behind by the harvesters. So Ruth asks permission from Naomi and rises early in the morning to make her way to the nearest field she is working so hard that she attracts the attention of the foreman overseeing the harvest. He notices that she barely even stops to rest. Ruth reminds me of that scripture. The Lord helps those who help themselves. Hezekiah 6.1. Okay, who's going to challenge me? There is no book of Hezekiah in scripture. Yes, Hezekiah was the king of Judah, but there's not a book named after him. And there is no verse in scripture that says, the Lord helps those who help themselves. But that was a way of life for Ruth, clearly. I have an assumption about what Ruth might answer when we ask her what she needs, because she is independent. She is a hard worker. I expect that she would resist receiving anything that she didn't earn. But those assumptions that I'm making, they get in the way of me listening closely after I ask that simple question to Ruth and discovering in her answer how it is that I might care for her. 
Ruth is a stranger far from home. She is a solo caregiver providing support for a grieving relative. A need to ask and not assume. A need to commit to listening to Ruth, being present as she responds, and letting Ruth teach me what she needs. All courageous conversations begin with simple questions and the curiosity to truly listen. So where do we go from here? That's the question in front of us today. I don't know about you, but this worship series has really challenged me in several ways. I was fine imagining myself asking the first question, where do you come from? But asking people where it hurts and what they need feels very invasive to me. It makes me uncomfortable right now, that feeling in the pit of my stomach. So I've been unpacking why it is I'm so uncomfortable with that and what that should teach me about where God is calling me to go. I've definitely decided I need to work on courage. The kind of interviews I did back in my days of television news were not Barbara Walters-style interviews. I never tried to make somebody cry. Even now, the idea of initiating a courageous conversation isn't something that comes naturally to me. Maybe I'm a more private person than I thought, but I can see how God could be at work in that conversation. I can see how it would be holy ground. At the beginning of my television days, I hosted a half-hour public affairs program on a local PBS station. 30 minutes on a PBS station is no commercials. That's a lot of airtime. I recorded my first show in early December, and my guest was an expert hired by the local Better Business Bureau to assist merchants in preventing holiday shoplifting. I did lots of research for that interview. I filled three legal-sized pages with questions, but there was a big problem. The only person more nervous than me was the local expert on shoplifting. He was so nervous that no question he answered, none of his answers had more than three or four words. I asked my last question on page three with 15 minutes still to go in the program. And for the life of me, I cannot tell you what happened next. I can't even remember. I don't know what we talked about. My brain was in overdrive trying to get that man to say more about the subject. Somehow we made it through. But I do remember that because I was nervous, I was making my way down the list of questions without listening closely to his very short answers. When you listen closely, the answer leads to the next question. That way, both of the participants get to shape the conversation. I think that's what we're talking about in this series. When we invest ourselves in courageous conversations, when we demonstrate holy curiosity for that person sitting in front of us, we surrender our need to control the outcome. We dive in without really knowing where we're going to end up. And that's amazing. Both of my sons are married now. 
They are not living in Fort Worth. And so 90% of the conversations between my sons, my daughters-in-law, and me happen on WhatsApp. Interesting photos, short sentences. It is a conversation and it is far from courageous. But here's the good news. In just a few weeks, we will all be together for four days at an Airbnb in Texas. And I plan to lean into simple questions. And the curiosity I will demonstrate to listen will be amazing to them. And I'll tell you how it goes. This series, this amazing series, I think has challenged all of us. As I was working on this sermon, I went back to the planning guide and I found there a series of sentences that I want to share with you as we close this morning because they represent the goals of these four Sundays that we have spent together. And I think they sound kind of like a prayer. Maybe it could be our prayer this morning. First question, first sentence. May the series help us to behold each other as images of the divine. May it strengthen our capacity for empathy and compassion. May it remind us of the power of asking unassuming questions. May it show that courage is rooted in the heart. May our courageous conversations lead us to become the community God has created us to be. Amen.